Well, welcome back to our final study in the book of James today, ladies. Today, this lesson is titled Day 12, The Promised Healing We Actually Need. And we'll be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13 through verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul, from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we have seen James walk the reader through very practical counsel for believers in terms of what our lives should look like when we are being sanctified and growing in Christ. Everything from anger to pride to wealth to the use of our tongues and now here at the end he comes full circle back to suffering once again. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Remember, he started off this letter telling them to consider it joy when they face trials, holding steadfastly to the hope we profess in Christ, and now, wrapping this all up, he encourages the reader to take their suffering and pain to God. If there is anyone who is cheerful, rejoice. Be grateful to God for the joy you have in Him. And now James once again gives practical counsel on dealing with those who are sick. Now, I have to preface this passage. This is not an, if you follow this formula, God is required to do what you want, and healing will always follow. Remember, James has spent a good portion of this letter instructing the people to ask God for wisdom when they lack it, to pray in true faith, to ask for everything, knowing that God is the one in charge, not to ask with selfish motives. So it shouldn't be surprise us that this passage cannot be taken in isolation, but must be seen in relationship to the rest of the letter in order to be understood correctly. So let's see what he does say. He starts by saying, If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So first thing we should ask is why we would call for the elders of the church. What is possibly unique about elders that they are the ones to be called on? While the role of elders is clear in Scripture, first of all, they must be mature believers, men of honor and respect, able to teach, managing their own households well, etc. Their role is one of shepherding, of care and direction for God's flock, care for both their spiritual and their physical needs, as we saw, for example, when the apostles had to delegate responsibility to deacons to do the hands-on care for the widows. Shepherds are ultimately the ones who were overseeing that function, but the hands-on happened with the deacons. So it makes sense that those charged with care and guidance for the needs of the body, especially for their spiritual needs, would be called upon to act in a situation like this. Well, what are the elders called to do first? to pray. 
They aren't called to come with medicine, with the local shaman, or with herbs and treatments. No, they are to pray. Who are they praying to when they do this? Where is that appeal going? It's going to God. They're taking the appeal of this person under their care, and they are bringing it straight to God. So what's up with the oil? The oil is not medicinal. It's not curative, and it's not trying to be. Throughout scripture, anointing someone with oil was a way to set them apart for something, some unique role or function. Kings were anointed with oil. So were the priests. But the tabernacle was also sprinkled with oil. The oil has to do with being set apart, being holy, being consecrated for that purpose. So in this case, the oil is about setting apart the person who is sick for specific focus of the prayers of the elders, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. So all of this is done with the understanding that God is sovereign, God is in control, and this person being set apart to God for healing is being entrusted into God's hands to do with as God sees fit, even if that doesn't mean healing on this earth. Now, the next line is where the charlatans and faith healers, quote-unquote, have fun twisting scripture. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, scripture shows that, first of all, faith truly is the important component here, but not as the word of faith teachers think. To the word of faith teacher, faith is something that you can actually measure. You can have a certain quantity of it, and you must have a certain quantity of faith in order for God to answer your prayers. That, by the way, is super convenient for them because when you pray for your outpouring or your miracle breakthrough, when you pray for your millions of dollars to be dropped on your doorstep and that doesn't happen, that's, of course, your fault because you don't have enough faith. If you aren't healed, they would say, it's because you lack faith or you're sinning. But that's not what scripture says. The key part here is the faith that is in the name of the Lord. Read it all together. We're going to anoint him with oil to set him apart in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith in the Lord. It's who our faith is in that will save the one who is sick. This means healing is ultimately up to God. We can set apart to God those who are ill, cry out to God on their behalf, and doing so has value, even if God chooses not to heal them. Yet God will receive glory through all of this. We must recognize that God is sovereign in this and will answer our prayer in a way that brings him the most glory. He may or may not heal, and it may have nothing to do with the faith exercised on the part of the believer. We should be praying prayers offered in faith, not just in terms of physical healing or even spiritual renewal. All our prayers should be offered in faith, faith that the one who hears them will act, and that when he acts, he will do right, even if the result is not what we expected or even wanted. Even someone who is mature in the faith, who is godly and righteous, and is someone whom all believers point to as an example, even that person does not have the power to demand anything from God. God still doesn't owe any of us anything. Consider Paul and the example he gives us in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in his flesh. He pleaded with God for that to be removed. He sought God repeatedly regarding this. And God's response was basically, nope, 
My grace is all you need. You don't need healing from this. My power is shown all the more when you are weak, and this is going to remain with you for your good and for my glory. No one is higher than God. That last line here in James, though, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There can be at times a connection between sin and health, but we have to be careful here because this is not always the case, and we must not presume to be God in this matter. But we do see in Scripture that God does strike down people who, for example, in 1 Corinthians, who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for trying to trick the Holy Spirit. So could God still strike someone with ill health or even with death for their sin? Sure, sure he could. However, we don't really need to over-spiritualize, for example, cancer. We live in a fallen world, and as a result, our bodies are falling apart. The further we get from Eden and perfection, the worse the consequences of death entering the world seem to be, and cancer is just one example of that. Still, one final note on the word sick here. There are actually two different Greek words that James uses in this text that are both translated as sick. If you cross-reference them throughout the New Testament, these words are not used just to discuss physical illness, but also spiritual illness as the result of suffering or persecution. Now, James could have had both concepts in mind as he wrote this, but can you see how the idea of spiritual sickness due to suffering and persecution would fit well in this passage? In fact, in this whole letter, helping us understand what James is talking about here? Understanding the spiritual aspect of this, it makes even more sense why a time of shepherd, elder-led prayer, confession from and on behalf of the one who's being set apart, who is ill, would lead to spiritual restoration. And that's right where James goes next. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Ladies, the only healing that is guaranteed in this life is spiritual healing and restoration that we can have when we repent and confess our sins and are forgiven and purified from all our unrighteousness. We can know that our sins have been paid for, and that's the healing we need most of all. On to the next tricky part. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, so based on what we've seen from just this letter of James, what would the prayer of a righteous person look like? That would be a prayer prayed in faith. Back to James 1.6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The prayer of the righteous person is offered in faith. And James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Asking out of selfish motives is not the prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person is the prayer of one who, first of all, is not asking out of selfish motives, and second, who is asking in faith, trusting that God will do what is right. And the prayer of someone who is in line with God's will, who is humbling themselves before God, that will have great power because the power behind that prayer is trusting fully in God. 
What example does James give? Elijah. Elijah was just a man. He was not perfect. He even was prone to fits of melancholy and depression. Yet he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and it did rain, and the earth bore fruit and crops grew again. Elijah's prayer regarding rain had a huge impact, and it was all for God's glory. God was shown to be the true God, the real power, not the false god Baal, who was supposed to be God of the weather, God of thunder and lightning and rain. Now, Elijah was just a man, but he was a man who was called by and used by God for God's glory. And we can see that his prayer was in line with God's will, because God answered that prayer by doing as Elijah asked, and God brought himself tremendous glory in the process. Remember, ladies, God commands us to pray. No prayer is wasted if it's prayed by someone who believes that God is there and God is listening. God is still sovereign and he will do what is right. But when we pray, we come more and more in line with him and his will, and we learn how to hold fast to him and align our prayers with what his will really is. James then sort of abruptly ends the book. He ends with an encouragement to care for your brothers and to work to draw back to God those who have departed from the truth. We are to be our brothers and sisters as keepers in that sense. We are to seek out those who are wandering from the truth, show them the truth from Scripture, call them to repent, and plead with them. But then we are to trust God for the result of that as well. Still, if we are truly concerned about the eternity of those around us, we will pursue them when they wander off. We will point them back to truth, if for no other reason than to spare them from an eternity in hell. Not everyone who wanders from truth will return to Christ. Not everyone who wanders from truth is actually saved. There are those who, as First John says, will go out from among us because they were never actually part of us. Still, we should at least try to draw them back to the one who can save their souls. We should care for them enough to at least try, as always, trusting that if they are truly his, God will draw them back to himself, and you might be able to be a part of that process in the life of a brother or sister. Ladies, as we close out this study in the book of James today, think about what we've learned in this book. How has your understanding of suffering been adjusted from James's letter? How have you been encouraged from the reminders of who we are living for? What have you learned about how your circumstances relate to your perspective? What new truths have you learned about our holy God? What have you learned about what a godly believer looks like? What have you learned about the sin of partiality? How have you been challenged not to simply have faith, but to demonstrate the reality of your faith in the fruit in your life? How have you been challenged in how you use your tongue? How has your understanding of godly wisdom been directed? How have you seen how you might be seeking your own selfish desires when you pray, instead of seeking what is God's will? What have you learned about how to make plans for the future, knowing God is the one who knows the end from the beginning? Where is your trust placed? In yourself? In your wealth? How are you waiting for the return of the Lord? Are you hoping he doesn't come for a while yet? Or are you looking forward to his return, to being united with him outside this body of sin? 
How are you trusting in God? How are you being sharpened by your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you sharpening them? Ladies, I pray that you take away great encouragement from these lessons in James to know that while we are not yet perfected, we have confidence to come before our God and Father in faith, trusting that the one we have faith in is the one who is faithful, and he will do what is right. He will bring himself glory, and he will do what is best for you, his precious daughter. You can trust him. Live for him, ladies. Don't get discouraged as the world gets darker. Take heart. He has overcome the world, and he is coming back. Until then, love your brothers and sisters in Christ and persevere through whatever he has led you to today. Eternity is worth it, ladies. Press on, knowing that you are able to persevere because he has preserved you. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website naomistable.com day 12, The Promised Healing We Actually Need.